Hello and welcome to another exciting edition, edition, episode, entry in the long-running saga of uh, Thronder Dome. That's right, you are listening to the world's only Star Wars podcast hosted by myself, Dr. Daniel Dottie, and the always vivacious Reverend Ronnie Gardaki. Ronnie, how are you feeling tonight? Feeling ready to, to dress up as a Jawa and uh, break into a palace. <laughs> yeah, uh, we have all kinds of uh, really kind of sneaky shenanigans in, in this set of chapters as we are recapping the uh, final volume in the masterful Thrawn trilogy, The Last Command, written by Timothy Zahn, first published in 1993 as the concluding, uh, the concluding volume in the official continuation of the Star Wars continuity. Uh, and everyone, it's really, we, we had our, we had our troubles. (laughs) We had some rocky points at a a couple times here and, uh, with Mr. Zahn's vision, but I think it's, it's come together a little better. And more interestingly, there's a, a character who has been in the books. Like he, he, I'm just going to go ahead and say Niles Ferrier actually gets to be much more of a character in these couple of chapters, which I did not see coming, but he actually has some like traits that we can talk about which is fascinating um, this is what happens when you underestimate zon I, I see again and again i am left holding the bag as i think to myself ah oh, zon you, you fucked it up this time or you don't know what you're doing and then he comes back and just lands another haymaker on me uh but uh, we'll go ahead and get started with the recap just to uh uh, we'll go see what delights and and literary uh, filigrees Zahn has in store for us as we cover chapters 13, 14, and 15. If you are reading along at home, uh, which I, of course, assume all of you are. I, I figure if you're a listener of uh, this podcast, you've gone out and bought yourself a set of uh, first edition hardbacks to uh, to follow along. So let us open. let us now open our Bibles to chapter 13. Where uh, we uh, we have a scene of uh, I, I guess ten diminutive figures disguised as Jawas slipping in through a secret entrance uh, that palace security had uh, had sealed, but that Luke had now just carefully unsealed, as it says here. That's right, the Nogri have come to Coruscant. Ten Nogri disguised as Jawas have uh, been deployed. Lady Vader is going to have her own secret bodyguard of crappy little gray jerks. Um, so Also, uh, disguised as Jawas, isn't that just, like, wearing a robe? <laughs> it is. It's wearing a robe. But it does tie into something that... There's a mention of Jawas later, and I... We'll get, we'll get to it. I, I think Timothy might have done something clever. We'll, you know, we'll see. I don't want to give him too much credit. Um, but yeah, it would just be wearing a robe. Uh, but they make their way up to the residential apartments where the Lady Vader is, of course, uh, set up with her twins. Uh, introductions are made all around. We get a couple of stupid Nogri names I don't care about. And then also Kabarak is there. So that's pretty good. Uh, Han is referred to by <laughs> the Nogri as the consort of Lady Vader, which he bristles at a little bit. Uh, Leia leads the Nogri team to that residential suite to meet the others they'll be guarding. Winter, Jaina, and Jason. Jaina and Jason, you'll recall, are the newborn twins. With stupid uh, names. With stupid names. And and speaking of newborn twins, 
I have actually a little bit of news that we're going to have to cover before we go any further. Uh, and Ronnie, I, I showed you the screen cap that I took there. Um, but there was a, I saw a, a social media post earlier today uh, where I know we have a strict no Wikipedia rule on this show and we generally stick by it. Um, but uh, someone had posted a screenshot of a entry for on Wikipedia for the term breast. Uh, and it has a canon tab and a legends tab. And if you'll recall, legends is the old expanded universe that Disney declared non-canon. And that was actually inaugurated by these Thrawn novels back in 1991. Um, and when I saw that, I immediately clocked instantly, instantly that we had just read the part <laughs> in The Last Command that introduces breasts to the Legends continuity. <laughs> because, of course, you remember last time we had the uh, the scene of uh, Leia breastfeeding Jason and Jaina. The word breast is never used, uh, nor is breastfeeding, but uh, it was definitely heavily implied. So out of a morbid curiosity, I, I went over, I navigated over to uh, Wikipedia just to check and see what the Legends tab had to say. And, <laughs> and this was amazing. So there's a little quote of some flavor text above the, the text of the article. And it is that exact scene from The Last Command. It's just an excerpt discussing uh, the breastfeeding Jaina and Jason. I absolutely called it sight unseen. Uh, but it is really incredible. And a little detail that I, I wanted to make sure everyone was aware of is that uh, on, on the Wikipedia, it just has the lines of dialogue with some, like, stage direction in brackets. Uh, it's not the actual, like, direct text. Um, but it does use the term Leia breastfeeds Jaina in those kind of stage directions. Uh, and I think that's really disrespectful. I think that's very disrespectful to the, uh, to the, to the, to the grace and aplomb with which Timothy Zahn deployed himself in writing the scene without ever using the terms breast or breastfeed. Uh, so I just want, once again, I think we are vindicated in our anti-Wikipedia stance because they have betrayed Timothy Zahn by introducing the B word into... Zahn knew not to use that word because he he knew that the Star Wars fandom wouldn't know what to do with it. <laughs> Look, I, you know, the Star Wars fandom had been confused and, and, and stirred up enough by the uh, slave girl outfit that Leia was made to wear on Jabba's sail barge. I, I don't think they need anything. Start else. throwing around the B word in, in uh, your, your novel, getting into porno territory. <laughs> and we definitely, uh, we definitely don't need that. Uh, but uh, okay, so so enough with that news. Enough with that's the something news, we'll never do. We'll never read. We'll never read uh, Star Wars fl- uh, slash fiction. Absolutely not. No, despite all of the well, and despite some <laughs> saucy passages we'll have later, or rather ones that I interpreted as saucily. Um, no, we will never read that because because we are staunchly against fan fiction. Uh, I'm just going to plant my flag right now, Ronnie. I mean, I don't know how you feel about it, but uh, I think it should all be burned like the Library of Alexandria. And the only fan fiction I want to read is the stuff written by nerds like Timothy Zahn that has the official uh, copyright permission of the Disney Corporation. Alan Dean Foster. Alan Dean Foster. Chuck Wendig. You know, the greats. Kevin J. Anderson. Um, Kevin J. Anderson. Uh, ooh. 
Um, I'm having trouble pulling another one. Ooh, Michael J. Stackpole. He wrote those uh, uh, rogue lead, those rogue uh, squadron novels. But anyway, to get back to our to get back to our narrative <laughs> after a little news break there. Um, Luke and Han jaw a little bit about their misgivings about the plan, and Han muses that if Luke took the Nogri with him, then they wouldn't have to worry about being seen. You know, this, the Nogri are not supposed to be on Coruscant. No one will see us here. A gravelly voice mute at his elbow. <laughs> I do like the idea of Han having a like a jump scare from uh, from a Nogri mewing uh, at his elbow. How do you mew in a gravelly manner? Well, we covered this. They sound like Eartha Kit. Or, or Mar- they sound like Eartha. They sound like Marge Simpson doing an Eartha Kit impression. How's that? <laughs> Can you do that? <laughs> Can you do that? <laughs> oh. That's my impression of the Nogri. <laughs> That's really awful. I thought for sure you were going to try to do Marge doing Eartha Kit, but instead you just went with sick stray cat. <laughs> I just went where my voice took me. That's right. You were moved by the muses. Uh, so after that comic interlude, uh, Luke suggests that they get a move on immediately. Um, because they're going to, I guess we should remind our readers, they're going to break Mara Jade out of house arrest so that she can guide them to Wayland so that they can see what's going on at Mount Tantis because Mara has told them that's where the cloning operation must be. Um, Luke suggests they get a move on immediately since it won't be until morning that anyone will check on Mara, which will give them several hours head start. Um, Han uh, <laughs> Han has, uh, of course, not... not he, he's, he's a little... Uh, upset about the fact that he's going to have to have another long spaceship ride with C-3PO. Uh, I was about to bring that up, because uh, uh, yes. said he, uh, Han had to have C-3PO along yakking his overcultured metal head, metal head off, too. <laughs> it just got yes. better and better. <laughs> so I, th- I think we, we can add overcultured to droid with a long handshake and a friend's a friend of Dorothy Tron. Luke and Lando head off to spring Mara from her apartments there in the Imperial Palace by using a special restraining bolt that Chewie had rigged up to uh, slap onto the guard droid, uh, while Han finds Leia for a private moment to say goodbye once again. Mara is uh, dreaming about the Emperor again when she wakes uh, when the alarm from the guard droid sounds, but immediately shuts off. I lock. forgot how silly the Emperor seems. He yeah. was talking about how him raising his hand, sending cascades of jagged blue-white lightning as enemies. <laughs> I just I used to imagine an old man holding his hands up going, Aah! Yeah, imagine Hugh Hefner doing that. It's pathetic. <laughs> it's disgusting, really. Uh, but Mara is woken from this dream when the alarm from the guard droid sounds but is immediately shut off. A lock clicks at the door. And Mara grabs a data pad she had on the nightstand that she was reading before going to sleep and hurls it directly at the intruder, who just holds up a hand and makes the pad drop. It's all right, Mara. It's just me, Luke Skywalker. (laughs) Which I do appreciate the... Timothy Zahn really does capture the gormless tone that Luke has. He really does nail that. Um I'm not sure how intentional it is, but I appreciate it nonetheless. Exactly. He he has really tapped into his own inner dunderhead when writing Luke Skywalker. And I just really, again, I love the, uh, just the vision of Mara Jade instantly flinging something at Luke when he walks into her room. 
Luke tells her uh, they're breaking. Uh, does it come close to home, Daniel? I'm <laughs> I'm filled with the with warm recollections of my own domestic life. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Luke tells her that they're breaking her out so that she can lead them to Wayland. Uh, Mara lamely attempts a couple of counters, but soon grumbles that she'll do it. She, Luke, and Lando take an airspeeder to the spaceport, where Chewie is impatiently standing by at the Millennium Falcon. Han asks her where they're headed, and Mara says to set course for Obroa Sky, the last stop before her previous visit to Wayland. Uh, Mara asks what kind of strike force is involved, and is a little bemused to learn that uh, it's just going to be the five of them. Uh, Han says, you can get a lot of distance out of not doing what the other side expects you to. Remind me sometime to tell you how we got away from Hoth. And, Ronnie, I have a question there. What? I mean, they got away from Hoth by, like, shooting an ion cannon at Imperial Star Destroyers to disable them and then flying away in spaceships. Right? Yes. Yeah, so that doesn't seem all that unexpected. <laughs> what is he talking about? <laughs> like, Look, you get a few space beers into Han, he starts conflating stories. It's... Just take it with a grain of salt. I guess so. I, I I I had a second thought where I was like, well, is he talking about like how they like went into the asteroid field and stuff like that? Like maybe maybe that's what he means. But the actual getting away from the planet Hoth was pretty straightforward. I don't know. Or maybe Timothy Zahn hasn't watched The Empire Strikes Back in a few years. <laughs> Lucasfilm, Lucasfilm didn't even they didn't even give him like copies of the movies to to watch while he wrote this they they were they were like no of course didn't you listen to like the the tape versions yeah 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 it was like uh audio dramatizations so i do think that this is the in this chapter we finally get like some table setting for the inevitable luke uh mara jade romance indeed um yeah oh sorry she goes like uh here he was, Luke Skywalker, Jedi Knight, hero of the Rebellion, pillar of law and justice, and he justified the entire New Republic establishment from Mon Mothra on down to get her out. Mara Jade, a smuggler to whom he owned, owed not a single thing and who, in fact, had promised to kill him. <laughs> See? it's She's yep. from the wrong side of the tracks, Daniel. And he's really stupid. It's a match made in heaven. <laughs> <laughs> it's the classic love story. What's well, the it's the classic contempt love story. and stupidity? Right, it's the classic love story of a stupid guy who will do anything that a pretty lady who holds him in contempt contempt will will you know wants him to do. So it's it really is a tale as old as time. Um, Han tells Luke that he's in charge of the droids and that uh, C three PO is not allowed to touch anything because he's been getting curious about mechanical stuff and messing everything up. Um, 3PO sometimes has extra time on his hands Luke explained He's taking an interest in mechanical work And he's pretty bad at it So we'll put in salary <laughs> So I like that C-3PO can't even be good at something <laughs> Like Yeah he's not even good at the thing He was programmed to be good at Which is like A protocol droid Like knowing how to be diplomatic Like he's always sticking his foot in his mouth He's just a really tragic character, and, and frankly, uh, you know, perhaps he should be viewed with a little more pity than the contempt that he's frequently... Like, did the fucking uh, droids with. cartoon kill Timothy Zahn's wife or something? <laughs> I think Why does he hate C-3PO so much? <laughs> I think it's because he... 
Timothy Zahn identifies with Han Solo so much that he has internalized Han's dislike of C-3PO. Perhaps. Although, I, we're going to have to watch those old movies again because I don't remember Han hating C-3PO that much. I don't <laughs> think so feels like either. an escalation. I mean, he was, like, kind of, you know, exasperated with him a couple times, but... You know, he was exasperated know. with everyone. That's true. That's kind of his standard operating procedure. Um... But anyway, you would even call uh, Chewbacca fuzzball. Oh, that's true. It seems very disrespectful to someone who is like going to stand by you through thick and thin until death. Well, that's what you get to do when you have uh, someone's life debt. Yeah, you can, can really take them for granted. Them. <laughs> you, can, you can treat them like shit. They can't do anything. Um, can you imagine if you had my life debt, the, the shit I would make you do? <laughs> And like, and like every time I even so much as hesitated, you'd be like, oh, well, I guess you don't like, you know, being alive. Huh. Ingrate. <laughs> That's exactly what you are, an ingrate. I am an ingrate. Um, anyway, then uh, after a, a, a sort of drive-by to insult C-3PO some more, Han eases the levers on the hyperdrive, and off they go. And that's actually the last we're going to have of the uh, Lunchbox guys. Uh Except for uh, for Leia, for the rest of the chapter here, or the, the the section. But we go now to the Chimera, where Peleon is setting up the extended hit and fade on Coruscant, and worrying about what might happen if Kabaoth tries his little mind control stunt again. If you'll recall from last time, Kabaoth used his force powers to control the minds of the entire crew of the Chimera for a few seconds. And just as uh, Peleon's thinking on this, he gets a chill. Kabaoth is approaching. And Palayan is too far away from the Asalamir at the command chair to get there without looking foolish. Uh, Kabaoth demands that a ship be prepared for him to take him to Wayland. Palayan balks as Kabaoth is supposed to be aiding with the Coruscant strike. He's got to do that 40% buff on everybody. But Kabaoth insists, and when Thrawn enters, accompanied by an Asalamir-wearing Stormtrooper guard, Kabaoth makes his demand directly to Thrawn. Which Thrawn kind of... <laughs> in a, a Thrawn's got a couple funny lines in this one. He says, May I ask why? Uh, I just like the crazy. image of... I just like the image of tons of people in the room just having salamanders laying on them. <laughs> like so many... Like so many mink stoles with salamanders. Yeah. Kabeoth yeah. uh, gets a little cagey uh, when Thrawn asks him that, uh, saying his reasons are his own. Uh, but uh, Thrawn cheerfully accedes, instructing a lieutenant to inform a fleet group captain that the Star Galleon Draklor is to be detached from his command and assigned to Thrawn to be used to carry troops and passengers. With Draklor, it's like, you know, Timothy Zahn wasn't intent on just having stupid names for people. He was like, we need stupid names for ships as well. <laughs> Exactly, uh, I, I th- my instant thought there was like, oh, we gotta, we gotta put that on the stupid names master list. I do like that this is another. This is the second time a type of starship called a star galleon has been referred to. Uh, uh, attentive listeners will remember uh, during the climactic battle at the Katana fleet in Dark Force Rising, Luke wishes that they had been on a star galleon, which has apparently has built-in home alone traps for like anti-boarding. Uh, stuff built in. So, anyway, Star Galleons. In terms of stupid names, them. we've also got Lieutenant Tischel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not great. That's a pretty <laughs> stupid name. Yeah. 
Kabayoth is suspicious that he would have to share a ship, uh, but Thrawn assures him that he was merely intending to rotate out command at Wayland and wanted to kill two birds with one stone. Kabayoth relents. Thrawn explains to Pelayan that he is sending his elite troops on the possibility that Kabayoth has picked up on some trouble, thinking it uh, unlikely that this is rebel-related, since he hadn't had any indication from Delta Source that they know where Wayland is. And I had to double-check this. Um, something that we are very proud of on Thronderdome is our integrity. Um, I have to now confess to the listener, this is a blow to my long-held winter is Delta Source theory, because uh, I went back and checked, and winter was indeed sitting in on the little council of war that the lunchbox guys had, where Leia told them that Mara had told her about Wayland. So, you know, I I don't know what this what this means exactly, but that is I just want to put that out there, being honest. This is a blow to my to my theory. Um. Pleon has an odd moment where he has a uh, a very bad feeling about Kabayoth having access to Mount Tantus, and he kind of half remembers something, oh, but he can't really quite place it. But there's no time to dwell on half-remembered wisps. It's time to launch the Coruscant attack. And uh, that concludes dun, chapter dun, dun. 13. Yes. Yes. And Ronnie... This is this is a moment coming up here where you realize that Timothy Zahn really is the master. That every time I feel frustrated with him or I feel like I would have done something differently, I really need to sit back and realize we're talking to a professional here. He knows what he's doing. Because who else but Timothy Zahn could think of the just out of nowhere, crazy, really unique way to open a chapter by having your point of view character wake up. But he did it. <laughs> <laughs> he pulled it off. Chapter <laughs> uh, 14 opens with Leia having a having a dream. She's dreaming of Mara and Luke actually uh, as a as a dark hooded shadow moves toward them. Um, so everyone's having you know ominous dreams, but she wakes up with a jolt as alarms wail through the suite from the corridor outside. At first, she thinks it's another attempt on the twins, but no, these are like the air raid sirens. It's a different kind of alarm. Coruscant is under attack. Uh, Leia and Leia does. I mm, this I thought was interesting, and I want to unpack it a little bit. Uh, the way Zahn writes it here is that Leia throws through what she could in the way of mental comfort in the twins' direction. And I just have to wonder, like, I'm not, you know, I'm not Dr. Sigmund Freud over here or whatever, but I really do have to wonder what the long-term implications are of your mother being able to psychically change your emotional state. It's just, you know, Uh, a mental drop of whiskey. (laughs) I, I suppose so. It does seem... I... I'm curious as to how uh, other expanded universe authors develop this um, as the twins grow up in the continuity. And we'll have to see. But I, I, for one, kind of like, uh, I imagined Jaina and Jason on the therapist's couch for this one. <laughs> but um, uh, Leia also calls out for Winter, who is already in the doorway, warning Leia of the battle alert. Uh, she leaves the twins uh, in Winter and the Nogri's care as she rushes down to join the rest of the Republic leadership in the war room. 
Once in the war room, she gets a look at the tactical display. Eight interdictor cruisers blocking all entry or exit around Coruscant, plus two more with an escort of Katana Fleet dreadnoughts. What's going on? Squeaks Ghent, whom Leia had completely forgotten about. Great Ghent impression. <laughs> Thank you. I was, I was rehearsing it. <laughs> she tells him to stay out of the way and then has a second thought and yanks him over to a side room where the Republic's signals intelligence is at work decrypting Imperial communications. Uh, Leia asks for the person in charge, a middle-aged colonel responds. He asks if Ghent has ever sliced Imperial battle crypt before, and it turns out he did, as a youngster, about uh, 12 years old. He cracked the ILKO protocol in two months by himself. Uh, A task that took the Republic guys nearly a month with a team dedicated to it. So Ghent is warmly embraced by the decryption guys and gets put to work trying to break some of the codes to, you know, get a get a, get eavesdrop on the communications the Imperials are having while Leia goes back to the war room. Uh, this chapter has a lot of space battle stuff, so we'll kind of, we'll, we'll touch on that lightly uh, and kind of relate the more important parts. Oh, another stupid name, General Recan. General Recan, yeah, that's right. And that's not one that we can blame uh, Timothy Zahn for, because that's the name of the... The commander at the Hoth base. That's General Reekin. He's 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 from the movies. Uh, oh well, sorry. I don't I don't watch the film every day. <laughs> I don't think his name is ever spoken in the movie. So that might be one of those things that you'd only know if you read like the novelization by I assume Alan Dean Foster, but I don't know. Which you um, did obsessively. I don't think I ever did actually. I need to. I have. Hey, I have the original Star Wars uh, novel, like the the treatment that George Lucas gave Star Wars before it was a script, a shooting script that he we wrote out a novel that. for it. It's 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 interesting. Uh, it's interesting the the how how the project evolved. Um, Admiral Drayson is uh, in charge of the uh, defense since Akbar is away on an inspection tour at the front, and Drayson is clearly not up to the task. Sina Leikvold Middenil, chief advisor to Bell Iblis. Fuck off! <laughs> so, no! No! Yeah, her name is Sina Leikvold Middenil. No, Bonnie. no. It sure is. No. Well, it's a strong Corellian name. It is absolutely not a strong Corellian name. This is where I not, draw my line in the sand. It's not a, I, it's not a, it's not a strong Corellian name like Garm. That's for sure. I, I refuse to believe this. Uh, <laughs> I would just, I would just like to point out that with 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 a name like Leikvold, and uh, of course we remember Samuel Thomas Gillespie. It appears that we have Swedes and Irishmen in the Star Wars universe, as well as hot chocolate. So, make of that what you will. Um. <laughs> but Cena is there and asks, can you tell me what's happening? And Leia replies, what's happening is that we need Garm. And I just stood up and cheered <laughs> when, <laughs> when she said that. Because you know what? You're right. We do need Garm. But Garm, he's not going to come down to the war room unless and until Mon Mothma herself asks him to. Uh, Leia felt her stomach tighten. Um... Which at first I thought like maybe she was going to give birth again, but it's actually just Zong that would have been an unusual choice. <laughs> it's just Zong going back to the well for more stomach tightening. Um, 
because she thinks this is more of his his stubborn pride at work. She rushes up to, I guess, this is some kind of observation gallery or something where where Bell Iblis is standing by himself, but he's able to kind of keep track of the battle. Um, she starts to ask him to come to the war room, but he immediately asks her to use her comlink to warn Drayson about the two interdictors with those dreadnought escorts. Garm says that's Thrawn's little stunt to precision insert spaceships into a battle, to use the interdictors with their hyperspace blocking to to shape a corridor, leave a specific corridor where ships can drop in, that they are then more precisely inserted into the into the scrum. Now they jaw a little bit, but uh, by the time Leia tries to radio that in, it's too late. Two Star Destroyers appear to pummel an orbital battle station. Uh, Leia snaps that Garm is behaving like a little child, but Garm calmly explains with pain in his eyes that it has nothing to do with his attitude, but Mon Mothma's. For you see, <laughs> Mon Mothma takes her responsibility so seriously that she really feels every life hanging in the balance of her decisions. She is terrified of trusting anyone else with those lives, and that is why Garm cannot simply go down and take command until Mon Mothma can really trust him as someone who will take those lives as seriously as she does. Hey, did he you says, catch this this uh, this little nugget of information that mm-hmm. uh, Mon Mothra calls uh, Bell Iblis Garney? What? Where? I'm not interested in laying blame Garney, Mon Mothma said quietly, nor defending anyone's little niche of power. I'm Concerned about the possibility that all of this was indeed a setup, Leia, and that it will cost your husband and brother their lives. <laughs> huh, I didn't have that in my in my text. Well, it's not it's I I looked it up and it's not like a typo or anything. Alright. Yeah. So Garney is like his his you know, the equivalent of Bernie. I guess... <laughs> Garney would have won. I guess. I guess so. Um, Garney would have won. Um, but uh, Garm here, uh, Senator Bernie Iblis tells Leia, uh, "If you have to persuade her, Leia, it doesn't count. She has to decide this for herself. Perhaps she has." Mon Mothma's voice came from behind them. I like that. That's two jump scares: one from uh, Nogri and one from Mon Mothma. <laughs> but that's right. They're getting the band back together. Mon Mothma grants Garm the authority to take command of Coruscant's defense, and he gets straight to work. Uh, Meanwhile, we cut over to the Chimera, where Thrawn notes that several dreadnoughts are beginning to disengage from the uh, tussle around the battle station, which really can handle itself. It doesn't need protection from spaceships, and surmises that, ooh, our old Corellian adversary has just been put in command. After a little more battle stuff, the true masterstroke of Thrawn's plan is put into action. The Republic sensors are reading massive power-ups from the Chimera's tractor beams, but there doesn't seem to be anything being launched. Uh, Bell Iblis works out that they must be launching cloaked ships, uh, using the tractor beam to throw a ship, since you, you know a cloaked ship can't use its own engines. Uh, several more massive power-ups and discharges occur from the Chimera and several other Star Destroyers, and one of the Republic frigates is smashed into spinning by a collision. Bell Iblis orders that the Harrier fire its ion cannon in the path, the presumed path of one of those things, whatever it is that has been launched, uh, to try to disable the cloaking device and hopefully capture it so that they can, you know, jailbreak a cloaking device and get to know what's up with it. 
Thrawn gathers that the Rebels are attempting to take an asteroid uh, whole while capturing the cloaking technology, but of course he can't, uh, can't allow that. The ion beams manage to overload the cloak, allowing the asteroid to appear for a moment, and Thrawn lets it hang there for a while to let the Rebels get a real good look at it, and then orders it blown up with a salvo of turbo lasers from the Chimera. The Imperials have now launched 22 invisible cloaked asteroids into Coruscant space, but they fired off their tractor beams with those enormous power pulses 287 times. And now, they exit. With an unknown Bravo. number of asteroids... Yes, yes. With an unknown number of asteroids clustered around the planet, Coruscant cannot risk letting the planetary shield down to allow ships to depart or arrive. Uh, lest a asteroid get underneath there and, of course, you know, prove apocalyptic. Coruscant Colonel Brayman, is effectively out of the war. That's right. Uh, Colonel Brayman announces to the war room that Mara Jade has escaped. Everyone starts scrambling to lock down the palace and search for Mara, but Leia lets everyone know that Mara left with Han and Luke hours ago. Garm asks why, and Leia hesitates, but then decides, surely none of these people could possibly have anything to do with Delta Source. <laughs> Which is like, this is like eight or nine people gathered up in the room. So she spills the beans um, that about uh, the whole thing about Mara's going to guide them to Wayland, and that's where the cloning facility is. But it's decided that sending help would alert the Imperials, so they must sit on their hands and hope that Luke and Han can pull it off. Gent butts in to tell Leia that he has sliced the Delta Source transmitter and its encrypt code. Now, Leia insists that Gent not tell a soul about this and pockets the data card with the encrypt code. So I, were, I never in a million to... years thought Gent would become a pivotal character in this book. Well, I remember we were really confused in the the author notes for Heir to the Empire, the 20th anniversary author notes, where Zahn mentioned that Gent was a fan favorite. And we were both like, how? <laughs> he barely does anything. But I guess he's had a little... I guess he has a little more presence in these later novels. So yeah, now he's yeah. he's basically the equivalent of uh, Garcia from Criminal Minds. He does the computer magic. <laughs> he does the computer magic, and says and says stuff like uh, "Good morning, Murderinos." You know when everyone's yeah. Yep, yeah. yeah. he runs a true crime <laughs> podcast. Uh, I bet Garcia definitely has a true pro- true crime podcast. If that's not if that hasn't been a B plot on uh, Criminal Minds yet, I think I would like to write a spec script. I'm surprised they haven't done, like, five episodes on true crime podcasts. <laughs> they're really, they're leaving money on the table, and they need to talk to us. Uh, the proprietor and a frequent contributor to Deliver the Profile, a Criminal yes. Minds review podcast, uh, which I will be appearing, guesting on again very soon. Um, so some would call it the sa- Yeah, some would call it the Sassy Sister podcast to Thronderdome. Sure, I'll go yeah. with that. Yeah. Uh, but that wraps up chapter 14. And uh, now we uh, move on to chapter 15, where we join Talon Card in, uh, of course, one of the most uh, classic possible moves that Timothy Zahn has. Now we see, and here again, we have the master with back to back classic moves. He opens the last chapter with someone waking up, right? This chapter, he completely switches it up and instead kind of lamely describes a planet for a paragraph and then has a character set in it. <laughs> Which, again, we have never seen before in these novels. Uh, classic Zahn switch him up. 
Uh, but the smugglers have set up shop in a millennia-old ruin of a gigantic fortress on the planet Hijarna, uh, located on a bluff overlooking a plain scored by horrible scars of massive destruction. Uh, Samuel Tomas Gillespie is there and remarks that, uh, boy card, you sure, <laughs> we love that guy, remarks that, yeah, boy card, you sure know how to pick him. Uh, how'd you find this place anyway? Um, the card's like, ah, it's just in the old records. Um, so I guess that's how he finds all of his cool hideout planets. Um, Klingon's report? Yes, Klingon the Zebra Man's report. That's right, the two are going over a star map from Klingon the Zehethbra. Uh, and it's found no trace of the clone traffic. Uh, Gillespie says that this snoop work is not paying, and most of the smugglers are going to have to pull out to just stay in the black. Anger over the Imperial ambush has kind of cooled. Uh, Mazik never experienced any blowback from destroying an entire Star Destroyer under construction at that shipyard. Most of the smugglers are coming around to that, uh, well, apparently if they leave the Empire alone, the Empire will do likewise. And meanwhile, there's an awful lot of rum and cardamom to get past customs, or whatever the fuck it is they do. Uh, But uh, Card can see it's not going his way, but he puts this to Gillespie. What if he can find a way to guarantee funding for everybody, provided they keep on the clone beat? Gillespie is skeptical that the Republic will be paying privateer rates for simple spy missions, but Card brings up his boy Gent, and see, Gent knows his way around accounting, bank transfers... He can slice the smugglers into some sector fleet's pay records, and then it'll all be hunky-dory. I, d- I did like this element because, like, Card is kind of has has had that that tendency you get sometimes. Like, well, it happened to Han Solo too, where they're introduced as like you know the scuzzy guy, but then he comes around and he's just a good guy after that. I like that they reintroduce some scuzziness to Card, where he's going to be stealing from the New Republic, and in, in in order to you know accomplish their aims, but he is going to be stealing. Uh, I appreciated that. Yeah, I like that too. I thought that was I thought that was an actually good kind of character move. Uh, Gillespie says he'll give a try convincing the others, and agrees to meet up in four days. Uh, Card then allows himself a pensive moment, sipping at his cup. We don't know what's in it; it never says, but he's sipping at his cup. As the sun he's, sets. He's drinking a drink. And I, I love the fact that we have yet another card sitting, drinking thoughtfully from a cup while he pets his dog and he thinks about the circumstances. We, we had that when he, was, he had to abandon Mirker and now we have it, we have it again. Um, he's musing on how his lifetime of carefully cynical maneuvering has now landed him square in the middle of the war he was trying to avoid on the side of the dang good guys. Uh, I like the, the completely out of nowhere revelation about his dogs. Yeah, this 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 does kind of come out of nowhere, and I can only assume it's like a setup for some payoff later. But it does bring up something that I had wondered about. Um, so Drang of his two of his two Vorsker hounds, Sturm and Drang, that he has, uh, I guess, I don't know if the word is castrated, but he is he is cut off their their venomous. Poison tails, which also seems to be the source of whatever hormones make them extra crazy and aggressive. So, but, but Drang trots up to meet him, and Card muses on how the Vornsker must use the Force to hunt, uh, because he is just thinking about the reactions that they have had to Luke and Mara, and kind of reasoning out that perhaps it was this selection pressure that Vornskers had evolved using the Force as a sense for hunting. That then was a selection presser that led the Salamiri to evolve their force suppression trait. And I thought, you know, it's 
it's very, you know, ham-fisted, but I appreciated that little attempt at ecological thinking as, you know, thinking of an ecology was, that would result I was just in happy that, that the... That's on uh, name drop our favorite uh, our favorite G uh, creature, the Godel. The Godel, yeah. Because it Which... says forest sensitivity itself wasn't unheard of. Certainly, the Godel had a fairly useless form of it. So, poor <laughs> Which... Godel, killed and also <laughs> useless, useless forest sensitivity. But it's yeah. like. What, how how is it useless? Like what 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 kind of force sensitivity do you have that's noticeable but useless? Oh, and there are uh, persistent rumors about the doing you arguing again. Really bad name. Stupid name. Stupid name. I mean, compared uh, to Godel, it's trash. <laughs> it really is really a mistake for him to put those side by side like that. Just to really drive the home. Godel is one of the best name. ones he's done. Yeah. Um, but we cut away from Card, musing. He says, you know, come on, Drang, time to go in. Uh, you know, he, he's always feeling wistful, that Talon Card. Well, then we uh, switch our perspective over to the Chimera's hangar bay, where a shuttle has settled uh, there in the, in the hangar bay. And Palayan and Thrawn are there to meet Captain Mazik, who's escorted down the uh, ramp from the shuttle by some stormtroopers. Uh, Mazik, of course, you recall we just mentioned he was the smuggler captain who led the strike on the shipyard in revenge for the uh, the ambush. Uh, they have a little back and forth where Mazik needles Thrawn for still not having ca- caught Card, but Mazik is kind of caught off guard when Thrawn insists that eh, he's not here for punishment, but rather to clear the air. You see, Thrawn explains that the attack which moved Mazik to attack the shipyard in revenge did not come from Thrawn or any high-ranking Imperial officer. That, in fact, he had ordered the smugglers' meeting left alone. Mazik is suspicious, and Thrawn further explains that, yes, those were indeed Imperial soldiers, but that the officer leading them, the low-ranking lieutenant leading them, had accepted payment from some other party to perform the raid. Thrawn claims to have no proof who that was, however. Uh, Mazik is then let go to return to the shuttle and be dropped off, uh, I guess, wherever he's going to be dropped off, I guess. A plan inquires after Thrawn's plans, uh, whether, uh, whether they gave him enough. Uh, he says, like, oh, we've given him all that's necessary. And if Mazik I was laughing at the he... idea of uh, Zahn just thro- uh, Thrawn just showing uh, Mazik, like, a, a loose change documentary about the attack. <laughs> right. yeah exactly Um, we've given him all that's necessary and if Mazik himself isn't clever enough to finger card one of the other smuggler chiefs will be and just then everyone's favorite Niles Farrier walks up oh Niles uh, Niles that stupid cigar in his mouth to compliment Thrawn on making Mazik all nice and squirmy and Thrawn condescends and says oh your approval means so much to me (laughs) And uh, then Farrier asks uh, what the next move is. Thrawn informs Farrier that they've intercepted some encoded uh, transmissions from Card, which must be a call for another meeting. Uh, and here's a, a, a delightful exchange that I'm just going to read all together, and, and y'all will all know why. Card sent out a series of transmissions last night, one of which we intercepted, he said. We're still decrypting it, but it can only be a call for another meeting. Once we have the location and time, they'll be provided to you. 
and I'll go and help Mazik finger card. Farrier nodded. You'll do nothing of the sort, Thrawn said sharply. You will sit in a corner and keep your mouth shut. Um, so clearly, uh, Farrier is going to have to stay in the cuck chair in the corner while someone else fingers card. Uh, <laughs> that's... Completely juvenile. I know it's juvenile, but come on. I'll go help Mazik finger card. You gotta give that to me. Come on. Anyway. I understood like two of those words. <laughs> and the words were Mazik and card. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, and here's, here's a nice clumsy. I thought this was uncharacteristically clumsy of Thrawn's spoken language where uh, Farrier seemed to shrink back. Okay, sure. Thrawn held his gaze another moment. What you will do, he continued at last, is to make certain that a certain data card is placed into card's possession. There's two certains right next to each other. You you could have said make sure that a certain data card. Yeah. That's just, it just, I don't know. It it sucks. You can see it right there, certain and certain, right next to each other. Come on. Tighten it up. Betsy must be so exhausted by this point in the whole project. (laughs) We're closing it on the last half of the last book, and she has completely given up. But who can blame her? That would make sense. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but yes, this uh, data card has some some doctored uh, data on there. With uh, it, it's doctored with records of the supposed bribe that Card paid to the Imperial officer to make the raid. So Farrier assumes he'll have to break into the wild card, but stops when he sees the look on Thrawn's face. Palayan sighs and explains. Your deaf hell will be the one to plant the data card. <laughs> oh, yeah, the wraith that uh, the Han Solo blew up in that beer fire. Exactly. <laughs> the, one, the one who survived a, an alcohol fire because they're really not very hot. Um, but this was... I, I, we mentioned earlier that Niles Fair gets a little more character depth. And, and this whole scene was really funny because he's like... He's running up like this excited puppy... To, uh, of like, it was like, oh, what's the plan, boss? All right, you know, and he just keeps getting shot down by Thrawn's just complete disdain and Palayan's impatience, uh, and it's just, it was just kind of funny. Like I, I had never picked up on him being like an excitable doofus. That's never, that's not been part of his character before. But I, I kind of liked it here. I, I thought it worked a little better. It's like just at least distinguishing him as a character instead of just a guy who smokes a cigar. I mean, that characterization can last a while. That's true, but eventually you have to kind of, you know, you, you gotta give a little puff of air to keep that kite flying. I mean, I suppose. <laughs> but uh, Thrawn reminds Farrier that he has not forgotten that it's Farrier who was actually responsible for the deaths of all those Imperials at that raid, and that the debt he owes will be paid. And that concludes chapter 15. So there we have it. I thought this was a pretty good section. Yeah, this was okay. I mean, uh... This was was inching up into three out of five stars territory again. I mean, it's setting up some things that can either uh, be really stupid or that can pay off pretty well. And (laughs) that's the gamble we take (laughs) with Timothy Zahn. So we'll we will have to see where it all goes. I, I am a little uh you know, I'm a little disappointed that my my winter as Delta Source theory took a big blow here, but who knows? I mean winter could be playing a, a pretty deep double agent 
you know, play here where she's withholding certain information. I don't know. It's, it still remains to be seen. I'm but, just uh, happy that I know what a goatle looks like now because I uh, Googled it. Do they look like a goat? No. Okay, good. <laughs> they look like kind of a kind of a monkey goat combination. Okay. So they're kind of a little jerk, but they're not a little gray jerk. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's all we need. That's that's all it takes for us to be happy. Chris Peterson and the Godel. R.I.P. <laughs> True. Well, I was a little worried we were going to have another. Uh, Cena earlier mentioned that uh, her sons, Peter and David, <laughs> were on one of those ships. And she was worried that, you know, without Garm there to lead the battle, they might get got. Um, which... I don't know if those are named after comic book writer Peter David. Oh, possibly so. I'm sure. I'm sure Thrawn palled around with him at Necronomicon in Tampa. That seems like Necronomicon. Kind of... <laughs> yeah, that's that's a real one. <laughs> I didn't make that up. That came Dude, from, that came nerds from the nerds are so notes. fucking stupid. <laughs> but not the nerds who listen to Thronderdome. We love and cherish each and every one of you. Yeah, and you're all great. Those, one of those <laughs> one of those ways that we love and cherish you is to exercise your minds. Sure. I mean, what could what could be more of a mind exercise than reading Timothy Zahn? But I think we also need to kind of well you can't, you know, you can't skip leg day, right? You 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 got to work out all parts of your mind and body. Um and so now we turn to the leg day segment of <laughs> of uh the show into the Thronderdome, our famous world famous debate segment. Where uh, Ronnie and I face off man to man, brain to brain, mind to mind, over some of the most pressing, uh, contentious issues facing uh, America and the world today. Really, um, so Ronnie, what are we grappling over? What is the, what is the bone that we two savage hyenas will be uh, will be uh, tugging against? We're talking pulp today, folks. All right. Is it good? Is it bad? We're talking pulp. We're going with pulp. Okay, so let me just sort of get my headspace. Let me let me get my mind in the right headspace. Um, shoegaze has kind of fallen out of popularity, having been replaced by a genre called Britpop by the uh, mid to early '90s, and that's where a, a to that point long-running band they first formed in the 1980s, led by Jarvis Cocker. Uh, really came to the fore as one of the great uh, the great presences in Britpop. Pulp! Not that course. kind of pulp, you <laughs> numbskull. Ah, oh, damn it. Okay, well, what kind of pulp are we talking about? I was I had a story about karaoke. Well, go ahead with your story. Oh, well, it's not much of a story, but... Uh, well, you know, their, their one big radio hit was uh, uh, Common People. Yes. And that's one that I really, I love that song a lot. I would uh, sing along in the car all the time. And so when it was... Oh, that uh, sounds at, insufferable. Well, I'm by myself. Shut up. I can do what I want in there. It's my car. No, um, it's not. <laughs> so anyway, I, the point being, I had rehearsed it many times, right? And so uh, karaoke one night, I see that it's on the, it's on the menu. It's on this. So I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll wow them with some uh, common people. That's a, that's a crowd pleaser. They're going to love that. What I didn't account for was that this was the radio single edit. 
which is a full minute and a half shorter than the album version. They cut like a third of the song. (laughs) (laughs) And I did not know where the cuts were. So I was up there like ready to go on the verse and it cuts back to the chorus. And I'm like, what is going on? I bet you looked like a giant boob. The only there's only one more embarrassing karaoke moment that I've ever had, and that's when I tried to do the Tighten Up by Archie Bell and the Drells. And let me tell you something: if you think you can pull off uh, a karaoke where the vocal aspect is mostly a rhythmic spoken word, buddy, you're not gonna make it. <laughs> it was bad. But anyway, oh wow, also, D- Daniel botching something despite having utter confidence that he'll nail it. What have I heard about hmm. that one? Hmm. We'll get. We'll address that off air, Ronnie. But what kind of pulp yeah. are you talking about? <laughs> oh, we're talking about the kind of pulp that you get in uh, orange juice. Oh, all right. Okay. Uh. Hmm. So that's interesting. So, so, uh, would you like to be the pervert side for this one, or shall I? I'm against. I guess that makes me the pervert then. <laughs> All right. Well, how about you? How about you do your argument against pulp and orange juice, and then I'll start perving it up and talk about how much I love it. It's gross. It's disgusting. You know, when I drink something, I don't want to. I don't want to drink food. You know, I don't need like a bunch of bunch of stuff in my drink. You know. It's terrible, and I hate it, and and uh, <laughs> I, I don't believe anyone actually likes pulp. They're just doing it to be obstinate. Okay. Pretty powerful argument right out the gate, and I would counter with this. You don't enjoy the mouthfeel of little bits in your drink, Ronnie? No, I you don't. don't. You don't want mouthfeel with your juice? All right, no, 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 more seriously, and I'm not going to be a pervert, because you know what? Non-perverts can enjoy pulp and orange juice, too. I would say, all right, here you go. Ronnie, you know, you are so removed from the reality of where your food comes from. You're so removed from the reality of, like, what it takes to supply these grocery stores, you just sit at the end of you just sit at the end of a long ass supply chain reaching all around the world to deliver you your little treats. And God forbid you ever be reminded at any point that you know there's something a little uh, there, there's there's something natural to all this. This came from somewhere. This is not just a this is not just some sweet golden orange you know icor that came from Mount Olympus. This came from the earth, man. This came from fruit, dude. Pulp is there to keep you grounded. To remind you that real things made this. Real people picked it. Real machines uh, juiced it and turned it into concentrate. And then other machines gathered up the pulp from the squeezings and added it later to the mix. (laughs) It's a real natural thing. And, you know, well, a lot of things are natural that are also disgusting. Name one. You can't. <laughs> Nudity. <laughs> oh, well, you got me there. Except that I, as a pervert, I enjoy nude. I enjoy nude pulp orange juice drinking. That's really how you know Well, that's living. why God invented clothes. So we could hide <laughs> our shame. 
That's true. That's also why he created no pulp orange juice, so you didn't have to drink to, pulp to hide your shame. To hide the orange juice's shame. Uh, as yeah. always, I, I want to use one of, of course, one of the the catchphrases on on this show. Thank you, God. Thank you for inventing clothes for us. Um, but no, I, 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 I uh, well, here, okay, okay, all right. I got a question for you though. Let's let's kind of explore each other's thoughts on this. How do you feel about crunchy peanut butter? I hate it. And, and and is that another one where it's performative of the people who prefer it? Yes. Because I, I agree with you on that. I think that is what it is. Because when I was growing up, my dad always claimed to like crunchy peanut butter. And I, I guarantee you it was like a macho thing. <laughs> it was like him flexing on these little baby boys that he had running around his house. That he was a grown man. Who could handle some chunks in his damn peanut butter? But uh, I, 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 re- I, I don't think he ever honestly preferred it. They should have like chunky peanut butter, but the chunks are from different things. <laughs> All right. Um, you know, it's just like you know, chunks, yeah. like chocolate chunks or something, or dried banana yeah. chunks. You know, yeah. Hey, you know what they should add chunks to? Orange what? juice. They should they should add they should add pulpy chunks to orange juice. Like go one step beyond pulp and have little chunks of orange in there. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like the most disgusting thing you could ever possibly think of. I think it would be good. It would be like boba tea, except instead of little tapioca balls, it's uh, fucking you know chunks of. Ooh, you could mix it up with like different citruses, man. You could have like orange juice, but it has uh, like fucking uh, tangerine chunks in it for like a real, you know, like crazy kind of flavor combination of of, uh, of sour and sour. <laughs> so if you'd like to, if you'd like more of Daniel's disgusting recipes, email us. <laughs> yes, uh, email us. Once again, we'll have to conclude the debate there. I think it's clear to the audience who won. Uh, if you know, if uh, if if you're a member of the audience who is not afraid to embrace nudity and the natural world, then you know I know you're my people. Uh, you know who won this one. But Ronnie is right. If you want to write in to tell us uh, how right or wrong we were about this or that, uh, or even just to you know say you want to send us a couple bucks, and then we'll give you Ronnie's street address. Uh, you can write the show. You can write the show at thronderdomepod at gmail.com. I sometimes check it. Um, but we, honestly, we I do, think... We should, do a, we should do a giveaway where, uh, like, the winner wins some garbage from your car. <laughs> the famous gar- <laughs> memorabilia from the famous garbage car? Yeah. I could do it. I have a I have a big wad of napkins. Arby's gave me a fuckload of napkins the other day, so I yeah, just have, like, you, a bunch of napkins. And then you just, like, work. sign it and you uh, send it out. Mm-hmm. Once again, just uh, we're we are among the classiest podcasts out there. So signed trash is a really good way to <laughs> promote the show. <laughs> but but uh, part anyway, of Daniel's people and culture. It's true here in Stinkton. Um, that's a good. That's as good a point to uh, end the show as any. Uh, we really do appreciate all y'all nerds and perverts who listen to the show. And uh, please join us next time as we continue this uh, fantastic adventure uh, rollicking through outer space. Uh, we'll go as far as Mars, maybe even Jupiter. Who knows? Space is a, is a, is a big old place. And, uh, but we'll catch you next time.
on Thronderdome.